ahead and get started on the um, work session for December 1st. The first agenda item is going to be uh, the, the Guy Link Executive Director, Abby, but I'm going to introduce Matt Miller, um, who is the project manager for the Jones County Guy Link Center. Is he present? Yes, I see him. Welcome, Matt. Hey, how are you guys? Awesome. Great to see you. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. Um, I appreciate you guys having us on tonight. Um, we have a, a, a Abby to introduce to you as the executive director. Um, before I did that, though, I just wanted to take a moment to, guy to give you a quick update on our current timeline of things. Um, our building is, uh, construction is going quite well. Um, they expect to be wrapping up around the first of the year. Um, so once we take occupancy of the building, there's still some work that has to be done. We need to get our furniture in there. The county needs to run its network there. Um, and then we just want to give staff time to get in there and go through training scenarios and get com comfortable and familiar with the building as well. So we're, we're looking at opening um, in February at some point. Uh, tentatively, we're targeting February 8th, um, but that's kind of in flux as there's a lot of variables that are, uh, you know, still have to... Uh, come to fruition before we actually open. But that's our target date right now. Um, and so I guess with, with no further ado, then I'll go ahead and introduce Abby. So Abby Ferenzi is, has been hired as the executive director and she can give a quick update on uh, her background and what's been going on in her world lately. Hello everybody. Thank you, Matt. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. All right, sorry, I had to, I was in transit, so I need to do this for my car. Um, very nice to meet you all virtually. Again, my name is Abby Ferenzi. Uh, I have worked with the, uh, I was previously the director for the Iowa City Mental Health Center um, and have been with, I've been with the Mental Health Center about six years now. Um, but I've been in community mental health services for a little over 15 years. Um, I've worked in a variety of roles, case manager, crisis counselor, uh, housing coordinator, uh, all of which I think have helped prepare me uh, to take on this role, which I am exceedingly excited about. Um, I, I was hoping that I could be a part of uh, an access center when I had first heard about them. And so uh, being able to do that and to do that in uh, the Iowa City and surrounding uh, with the surrounding communities, um, I'm just really happy happy for the opportunity. Um, so just to kind of let you know um, where I'm, where we're at, I know Matt gave a, a brief summary. Um, right now, uh, I am in the midst of coming up with a lot of policies and procedures, working with the four providers who will be providing services out of the GuideLink Center, which will be Prelude, um, Community Crisis Services, Penn Center, and then the Abbey Mental Health Center. Um, so we're working on provider agreements. Um, and like I said, those policies and procedures. I was just over in the building today doing a walkthrough, um, practicing, practicing some scenarios we might run into. So um, <clears throat> that's what we're working on right now. Um, I was able to secure some CARES Act uh, grant funding for um, PPE and other tools that are going to help us operate uh, an access center with all the challenges of a pandemic. <laughs> um, so I was I was happy to be awarded that money and I've ordered a lot of, like I said, PPE and equipment. Um, so staff and clients and whoever else may be in the building uh, so we can all be as safe as possible. Um, so that's just, again, brief summary of where we're at. I was curious if anybody had any questions for Matt or I. Do you, welcome and really happy to have you here. Where, where, do you know where things stand with the winter shelter this year? Because the shelter house was the one organization you, you didn't mention. Well, um, so shelter house uh, it operates separately from GuideLink. So I'm not the executive director over shelter house. They just happen to be in the building next to us as well. Um, so Chrissy Canginelli um, and Mark Setter, uh, as far as I know, I have heard from them that they plan to open, I believe they had said December. So I believe any time now. Um, I, can, I can give you guys kind of an update though. They're, they're initially going to open up in the old CarQuest building by the county facility where they've been the last couple of years. 
Um, and then as soon as we get occupancy um, of the new building, they'll move in there right away. So really I anticipate the start of January, they'll be in there. Thanks very much. Great, thanks to both of you. And we're excited about the Guidelink Center. Yeah, if I can just say one more thing. Um, certainly this, this project has been a long time coming. Um, we've been working on this for several years. And uh, it's definitely getting hectic right now. And I just want to uh, commend Abby on the job she's done. She's had an incredible amount of things thrown at her in the last six or seven weeks since she started. And she's handled it really well. So if she can get through this, I, I have no problem. I have uh, all the faith in the world that we'll be pretty successful. So thank you, Abby. And, and thank you uh, once again for you guys' continued support. And we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you guys again soon and giving you a tour in the very near future. Great. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Any uh, any other additional comments from council? All right, thanks, you two. All right, COVID-19 updates. We just had Thanksgiving, so <laughs> yes. Any thoughts there from anyone? And, and I do hope everybody had a, a, a good Thanksgiving even though it was different. I think just be mindful of, um, continue to be mindful of activities um, moving forward. I think um, everybody knows by now what the three things are that can help slow the spread. So we'll just continue to monitor that. Our I, I just say thank you to everybody who's, who's wearing a face covering. Thank you to everybody who's doing um, what you need to, to to help keep you and other people safe. Um, and I think we've seen a, a number of, of articles recently in the media of, of people who just got tired and let their guard down and it did not end well. Please, the, there is light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines. Please keep it up and thank you to everybody who's continuing to um, do what you need to, for on, particularly on behalf of our healthcare workers. Yes, well said. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. We're going to move on to um, Black Lives Matter movement and systemic racism. Um, any updates there? I know that there was one update, um, which maybe we can bring it up now. Um, it's in the info packet. I think it's November 25th info packet. Um, no. It's in the formal agenda. So, and that is the, the commission, the HRC commission. They had a recommendation to staff. I don't know if um, uh, many of us read their recommendation, but it related to uh, IFR having a seat at the table. So I think we should address that. Uh, and we can probably do that now if people want to have that conversation. I'm trying to bring up, okay, there. So the, um, the HRC met and they did a recommendation to council and I'll read what the recommendation was, specifically their wording. Um, so be it resolved the IFR having a named representative have a seat at the Iowa City Council at the Iowa City City Council to participate in all topics related to the June resolution subject to the mayor's direction voted on annually. So that is their recommendation and I wanted to, um, I, I think we should have the discussion and we did have this discussion as they even mentioned throughout their minutes um, they had a pre uh, previously, and then it came up again when they received a formal, another request from IFR. I'll start, I guess. I, as you said, Mayor, we had this discussion previously, um, and, and I'll have to say my position on this has not changed, and I don't think that any of the circumstances have changed. Um, I think there were, the majority of us felt this way before. Um, 
and I know you did, Mayor, and and Supervisor Royce Ann Porter, who's been a longtime activist in this community, said the same thing. And that is, there's two really big issues for me. One is, I still am not convinced that IFR represents the broader part of our community of people of color. Um, I guess I don't see how we can give them a seat at the table and not the South District Neighborhood Association, for example, or Black Voices Project as another example. Um, so I, I don't see that there's any one group that has that really shows me that they really represent that broader constituency. Um, and I think it's our responsibility to make sure that we are listening to all of those people. We are, I believe all of us are always open to, whether it's phone calls, emails, um, even in this pandemic, a lot of us have had Zoom calls. And in the summer, uh, we even had meetings out on the Pentecrest um, with individuals. And I think we're all still very much willing to do as much as we can, probably not out on the Pentecrest today, but you know, with phone calls and Zoom meetings, et cetera. So I, I don't, I'm not convinced that they represent that broader community uh, well in terms of having that representation. And secondly, I think it sets um, uh, a precedent that I would not want to be a part of because then I think anytime we get to a, a bigger, more complex issue, we end up with the same thing of one group, one organization saying, hey, we want a seat at the table. Um, and I guess I would just reiterate uh, Supervisor Royce Ann Porter's words, if you want a seat at, a table, at the table, you run and you get elected. Um, in the meantime, we are all, I believe, very much open and willing to conversations. And, and I speak, I think, both for, not only for myself, but I believe for the whole council. So I do not support the recommendation. Uh, for me. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mayor. Oh, no, please go right ahead. I was just going to say that uh, I echo what Susan is saying, although I, I respect uh, the members of the Iowa Freedom Riders and their opinions on things. I think, as she said, even uh, Roy St. Porter, who I, I admire greatly, uh, says that as far as, you know, if you really want a true seat at the table to speak on on whatever issues that come before the council, you know, run for council. It's, it's a great thing to do. Uh, but as far as one group having a specified seat at the table, there's there's many other groups that have interest in items that come before the council. My goodness, and, and we listen to them. We've always listened to them. As Susan said, that's a big key thing is to listen, listen to people. Uh, the hundred grannies, for instance, you know, they've never begged to have a seat at the table, but they're they're present when there's issues they concern they care about. And goodness, the climate action folks, and and they came and they spoke and they changed. Uh, they we turned around some things according to what what they were saying so you know and we have the listening posts uh uh also we've had groups where uh if someone wants to come before the the, the council and has a lot to say uh maybe two people can consolidate their time and so they wind up with nine to ten minutes one person talking because the other person chooses not to talk then because they have the same things to say uh we've always listened i think we've always given people time uh to talk uh so i i, I agree with uh susan totally on this um, I, I, of course, want to thank IFR again, as I've mentioned, um, they really started the ball rolling when it came down to council coming together and making some changes. Um, our resolution, yes, IFR came and they brought us um, some items and some demands that it, it really put council in a position to really think hard and 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 rather quickly about that resolution and how we wanted our community, uh, you know, what we were gonna strive for as a community. So I do thank them 100% for that. My position hasn't changed on this and it, it has a lot to do with um, what is, you know, what is the role of council? Um, who is a part of the council? These are elected seats. Um, and this is an opportunity for, um, when, when we're in our meetings, is an opportunity for, for people to come from the public during the open comment section, give their comments. Also, I noticed um, in the minutes that it was stated that uh, council is hard to get a hold of and, and have meetings with. Um, there's no conversation and without that conversation, you know, a lot of things can be accomplished. So 
Um, I know that this council had appointed two uh, counselors, both Councilor Burgess and Councilor Weiner, um, to be the liaison uh, between IFR and even the South District, as well as um, Black Voices Project and, and anyone related that was interested in the topic of uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But not only, it wasn't just limited to that, it was really limited uh, or an opportunity for anything related to um, our resolution. So I believe this council is um, accessible. I myself have, um, uh, the members of the IFR have my number um, and I have on there, um, especially with some of the younger people, um, during, especially during the protests, I have on there must answer, you know, because I wanted to make sure that they were safe. And if there was a concern, I wanted to navigate that immediately um, because there were some, um, some counter protesters out there. And so for me, again, it's, it's not about not allowing your voice to be heard um, because you are always welcome to this council. Um, you're always welcome to, um, to share your, whatever IFR as a, as a group or as individuals want to share with the council, you, you're always welcome to, to do that. I mean, it's no secret that there are some, a few things that I don't agree with um, when it comes down to a few of the ideations of the IFR, but I won't let that stop me from working with IFR or any member um, with IFR. I truly appreciate and I thank you for all that you've done for this community because you did, you started something that I am looking forward to continuing in my role as counselor and in my role as the mayor. So thanks to IFR, I do not support um, a seat at the table um, as, as I think has been referred to um, at the council table, but you are certainly welcome anytime at any of our council meetings. And you're also welcome to call me directly. Many of you have my direct personal number, use it anytime. I would just echo what my colleagues have said and, and thank the mayor for stating it so well. I hope that IFR remains engaged if we decline to grant um, this, this recommendation, we don't take up this recommendation. Um, I absolutely know that those members who've been in, involved, those individuals who identify themselves as speaking for IFR will continue to be engaged. And I hope they continue to be engaged. And I hope that um, we have facilitated a process in wherein so many different people can participate in local government and that we can be accessible in a way that I, I think um, really does credit our commitment to this process. Uh, like the mayor, um, my cell phone number is on the website. I will take a meeting, phone call. Um, with, with really anyone have done so with IFR members repeatedly and will continue to do so. So I hope those uh, individuals who represent IFR will continue to be involved and keep holding our feet to the fire. Yeah, I, I will, would agree with uh, my fellow counselors. And frankly, I was a little bit surprised to read in some of the minutes from that uh, HRC mission, um, commission meeting that uh, this, this sense that the council wasn't listening because I, I certainly feel I, I and I think everyone on council has really put really an extraordinary amount of time into listening and to trying to advance the conversation. And I felt uh, personally that we were making real progress on the policy matters, which I think is where we are at this phase. And uh, if, if anyone on, with IFR or anyone in the public in general feels that we're not advancing uh, the policy uh, in a way that they're pleased with, I certainly would like to have that conversation. Um, but I think thus far, it's, it's been productive. I've appreciated that, you know, what I've learned uh, from this process. And I think uh, IFR, I've contributed to their understanding as well. So it's, I felt it was sort of a mutual exchange that was making progress um, in a significant way. And I hope it continues to make progress. 
my position also has in kink. I really support the Human Rights Commission recommendation to give the IFR seat at the table. IFR not only start the rolling the ball, but they continue like bringing all this issue and reaching out to similar groups in the community, try to reach out to everyone from Black Voices Project to South District to everyone, try to include everyone. Uh, my position hasn't even though not going nowhere, but I guess for the record, I support their, the Human Rights Commission recommendation. I think someone, at least one person mentioned that our, our numbers are on the website. Um, if I can't pick up the phone when someone calls and you leave a message, I'll call you back. If, um, if you write me an email, I will write you back. I'm happy to talk, I'm happy to phone, I'm happy to Zoom um, in, in groups or otherwise. Uh, what I, I can really only echo what most of my colleagues have said. Um, I, I don't support the, the seat at the table, but I do support continuing to talk and continuing to learn in both directions because it has been an, an incredibly fruitful two-way street. All right, any other comments there? All right, we're gonna move on to clarification of agenda items. I just had one question. I noticed um, on the traffic calming 6D, uh, uh, you know, that the work had been completed. I one question I had was whether we uh, do a, a kind of a post-installation assessment of um, how the, the traffic calming elements uh, have changed the, you know, the, the speeds on the streets where they've been installed. Uh, John, I can probably um, confirm that uh, with you before the uh, before the vote um, takes place tonight. But uh, I believe that yes, we will go back in and we'll do kind of a post uh, traffic assessment and compare the speeds um, and volumes with the the uh, precondition. Um, <clears throat> but I, again, I'll, I'll need to just check with staff and verify that, um, and I'll I'll let you know before that vote. Thanks. Any other items on the formal agenda? Moving on to info packet number November 19th. I think. Well, I would just mention the climate action report then if nobody, uh, a lot of good information in there. I would encourage people to take a look at that, uh, their annual report. Yep. Um, and I know we got the, uh, the city manager Juneteenth holiday. Um, and that was also kind of broadcast everywhere over Facebook and uh, probably Twitter and some other city uh, communication avenues. So this is great, um, great news. So looking forward to this um, holiday here at the city. Info packet November 25th. I did want to um, make a few comments on on the um, IP7, the sidewalk snow clearing guide that I sent all of you, and I, I hope you had a chance to look at it. Uh, this this was in a sense a follow up to the council discussion of um, uh, which was on October 20th of the 2021 ice and snow operations. 
And uh, I just wanted to make some comments and, and offer something for your consideration. Uh, first, for those who are listening, who were not at that meeting on the 21st or the 20th rather, uh, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context uh, for this. Uh, the, the curb ramps, uh, there was some discussion of the curb ramps at that meeting. And the curb ramps are an essential element in providing universal access and the public right-of-way for pedestrians. Uh, and, and Iowa City has actually been very proactive in addressing uh, gaps in our pedestrian infrastructure through uh, filling some of the um, areas where our sidewalk network is not continuous, as well as disturbing, uh, installing curb ramps uh, in various locations. Uh, the, the curb ramps, you know, as a former landscape architect, retired, uh, they are a very complex feature in this pedestrian infrastructure. There are a lot of factors that come into play with how a curb ramp works in a specific location. Um, so they, they've been taken on by the city. The city does the design and installation and maintenance on those. So the question that's, that came up uh, was this matter of, you know, how do we deal with the snow removal uh, over the winter months? And uh, the sidewalks, as we noted, and this is really state code, uh, the snow clearing resulting from natural snowfall is the responsibility of the adjacent property owner. And on the curb ramps, the corner property owners are encouraged to clear the snow, but the city doesn't have enforcement power over that. So my observation, which I made on that night, was that our current approach is generally, in, in my view, from my experience and observations, it's not working very well. <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's a challenging issue. Um, you know, the piles of snow that are left by our city snow plows is, is difficult to clear. Um, and I think that contributes to why, uh, you know, some property owners on the corners may, may do the removal. Sometimes they'll do it and then the plow will come through again and, and you know, they'll have to do it again. So it's a, it's a challenging problem um, for the adjacent property owner to deal with. So I, after that meeting, I continued to do some research uh, on the question of, of how to remove that snow at the curb ramps. And um, I, I would add that it's, in my view, taken on an increased significance because we're, we're living through COVID People are sport, spending more time uh, near their home. Um, everyone's at home with them. And so the, the need to get out, sometimes by yourself, uh, for some relief uh, tends to be in the neighborhood in which you live. So eventually I came upon that document, uh, which I shared with you, um, published by the Department of Public Health, uh, which, is, which is in the uh, November 25th information packet for those who are watching. And the, the guide included snow clearing at the corners, which uh, were referred to in this guide as snow windrows. And, and it went on to say that the snow windrows are especially troubling for people with disabilities, seniors, guardians with baby strollers, or pregnant women, as walking or rolling over piles of snow can be extremely difficult or impossible. The guide then goes on to say that some cities do their best to clear snow windrows at the corners as part of their plowing procedures. And other cities have crews dedicated to clearing the windrows after snow plows have cleared the streets. So in, in reading that, and they give many um, kind of case studies of what cities in Minnesota as well as other places where it snows have, have dealt with these issues. And where, where I've kind of landed on this uh, after having read them was that since the snow piles obstructing pedestrian access results from our snow plowing operations, I, I do think it's fair and reasonable for our snow clearing operations to include the corner ramps, which are constructed and maintained by the city. And so I would ask for your consideration and support uh, of this change in our policy and that we, we direct staff to revise its snow clearing procedures uh, to match up with the 
with this concept, which would be that the, the curb ramps be included as part of their snow plowing operations. John, are you referring to all of them throughout the city? Um, you know, that, that's a question. And as you can see, there are, um, you know, there's, it's really an open field as to how we want to address this. Um, you know, that, that may be something for our city attorney's office to, to weigh in on, whether it's possible to identify priority areas where it would be necessary or something that we would um, do throughout the city. Um, but my hope without, you know, having had a conversation with staff on this is that as much of this as possible could be uh, accomplished through changes in our snowplow operations. And obviously it would take more time um, but to the degree we could just simply revise our plowing procedures to achieve this, that, that seems like the most reasonable starting point. And, you know, I, I don't know how you would make that priority, um, but it, it's certainly something that could be part of the conversation. I just, I have to say my initial response is, is one of, um, grave concern and, and I read the whole packet and it was it was interesting to see you know that various places in Minnesota and I, I think there's some in there from Wisconsin even wasn't there some examples but I mean same issues we've talked about and the conundrum you have of trying to keep these areas clear for anybody and everybody to walk uh, strollers wheelchairs people with canes whatever it might be um, but as I think about just the geographical area of our city and the amount of time it takes our crews just to get the streets plowed and safe for uh, vehicular traffic to slow them up to try and plow every single corner and intersection differently so that they don't plow any snow up onto the curb ramps. Um, I, I'm just, I'm really, really hesitant about how that can be accomplished without one, um, really slowing down the clearing of the streets and two, uh, significant, potentially significantly increasing the costs of snow removal. And at this particular time in the pandemic and not knowing what our budgets look like, uh, I'm, I'm really, really hesitant about heading down this path. I think if we do anything, I think it has to be um, very focused on very, very heavy pedestrian areas. And, and we may even already, and Jeff can answer this, maybe already doing more in the downtown area on the curbs, et cetera. Um, I hear what you're saying. I, I appreciate the problems for people with mobility, but I think trying to foist this entire responsibility on the city is gonna be incredibly, incredibly expensive um, and not necessarily what city residents are gonna to wanna to see when they see the cost of it. I somewhat agree with you, Susan. I think it probably uh, will be would be something that would take more time and staff and equipment. Uh, and on those lines, maybe we could. I think we should seriously consider this, though, and perhaps uh, a trial. And you mentioned the downtown area, maybe in that uh, surrounding area around there, we could try that. And I think uh, what John was talking about uh, in some of the other cities, they just they actually have a separate, uh, smaller uh, plow that comes behind that the big plow and clears just those uh, walkways. And, and he mentioned how difficult it is to, to clear piles left by the plow. And, and having had to clear my driveway after the plow comes through and leaves those big, big piles of snow that get sort of packed hard, uh, I can imagine it, it is hard uh, to even clear the, the uh, uh, ramps uh, if a person is uh, abutting that property there and has to do that. Um, so I, I think we should at least seriously consider it and even uh, maybe start with a trial with some of the smaller areas of town. If I can uh, jump in, I'll just let you know what we're, what we're currently doing. Um, started last year, we put more staff focus on the programs downtown. 
So we do have um, staff that after their main plowing duties are done um, in the downtown parking and, and park staff, they will try to clear as many of those as possible. Um, I can tell you, we have thousands and thousands of curb ramps. And um, in a lot of those cases, you're not gonna be able to drive a, a vehicle over them. If you think about older parts of town with, with um, really, um, the, the smaller sidewalks and four or five foot sidewalk, you're not going to be able to take a vehicle over there. If you look at some of those other cities, a lot of them probably focus on um, the, the very high pedestrian areas that probably have six to eight feet um, trail types of sidewalk. Um, I think I saw in the Minneapolis version, if I'm not mistaken, that they only do it after four inches of snow or more. And, and in that case, even only in, in very targeted areas, but if we wanted to try to take this citywide, you'd be looking, I, I hesitate to even give you an expense, but um, it, it would be um, hundreds of thousands <laughs> easily um, to, to, do this, to do this type of work. Um, we can't just adjust the way snow, plow or snow plows drive and, and not put that snow anywhere. I mean, that's, that's a common uh, question that we get because it, it, it frustrates people that clear their driveway and then the snowplow comes through and you've got to go out and clear the bottom of your driveway again. Um, when you're moving that much snow, it has to go somewhere and uh, it's going to go to the side of the road. So um, I, I would say that we're already doing this as best as we can um, downtown with the, our current resources. If you'd like to put more resources to it, um, we can kind of try to maybe give you some examples of what that looks like. Uh, we can contact some of these cities that were, that were pointed out and really kind of focus in on what their priorities are and how they do that. Um, but I'd, I'd be prepared at, at expenses measured in six digits or more. Yeah. Kind of hard to gauge staff or, or how much staff you'll need for this as well. Um, based on how it's presented if we were to you know service the entire community but i do kind of like the idea um of just doing a little research just to find out more about how the cities are operating so that we'll have some some knowledge of what's happening snow removal as we know it it, it is a challenge uh, for a lot of individuals various reasons why people having access, you know, usable sidewalks. We want to be a walkable community, even in the time of snow. Um, I think it, 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 it has some challenges there. Um, and if we can just do a little research, find out what other cities are doing, um, maybe there is a um, kind of an assistant, snow removal assistant program we might consider if someone is um, on a main street, for example, and they're getting a lot of snow at their uh, curb, which they have to, you know, remove that snow. Um, I don't know the, the limitations of, you know, the individuals, maybe they have a limitation of not being able to do it or have to wait for somebody to come. And maybe that's where they call on the city to just assist with that corner. Um, so I think there's uh, some ways that we could look at this in, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we will be able to do all of the programs as they're listed here, but I, I thank John for bringing this to our attention because snow removal is a major issue living in the Midwest. So um, thanks for bringing it to us, John. Mayor, if, if I may, I think, I think this might help. I'm gonna share my screen for just a, a brief moment. Um, hopefully you can see this map here. This is a, a curb ramp inventory that we have on our um, on our website and all these orange dots are curb ramps. Um, so at any intersection, uh, you're going to have typically eight curb ramps on a, on a standard um, intersection. And this is College Green Park. So we're kind of in the, in the downtown central part of town. But as, as I zoom out, you will notice the orange dots grow exponentially. And you could just think from this area right here, if we had to have staff, even if you had a little, little like uh, uh, tractor type of equipment to get all eight of those spots at each intersection. That's a very time labor intensive effort. And then as you scroll out in the city, you'll just, I mean, you can see these orange dots just become huge clumps. And 
the magnitude of the issue is is daunting, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that to to dismiss it, but um, if you're going to be focusing on citywide efforts, this is huge. This is massive, massive uh, type of undertaking, and um, um, I, I don't know how you you know we could we can definitely present you with some scenarios. Um, but I, I just not sure how you accomplish this citywide in any type of timely manner as well. Um, if you, you know, you think to how we handle snow complaints on sidewalks, city, you know, when it comes to forcing the, the, the removal, we have to hire that out right now. And that's a pretty, you've seen some of those bills on appeals uh, for what private snow removal costs. And that's just for a couple of squares of sidewalks usually. Um, when you start getting into more complex curb ramps, that require more hand removal. Um, again, I just want to prepare you for, for what that what, what that may look like. I just wanted to throw out the, the ADA perspective um, because I guess, I mean, I understand this, that, that, that it's almost certainly not feasible citywide, um, but I wonder in addition, if in addition to the downtown, it would be it would be feasible to look at areas around assisted living facilities or places where there, are, there, where there, where we know there are many people who who need to take the seats buses and who, and who may not literally be able to get out um, to the corners. Those are the places that are of real concern to me personally. In addition to what people can can do themselves, but those are folks who need the the accessibility and the ability to get down a curb ramp. Jeff, I would just um, urge communication on this issue like like we always do um, in asking for the community's help with this and you know appealing to those who can help their neighbors to please do so and those who live on corners to please clear those ramps. I think hammering those messages, especially in the COVID moment is is helpful. And I'm, I'm grateful to John for highlighting, you know, that that issue as well. And Jeff, I was just wondering if you could remind us what additional snow clearing we're planning for um, this winter with the pandemic. I know we're doing additional trails and um, park areas, or and I think there might have been a press release about that. But just if you have a general idea. Yeah, we are expanding um, the uh, amount of trails that we're clearing and. Um, um, parkland, uh, I guess, that we're clearing. Uh, typically, we'll use, uh, we'll have some of the non-heavily traffic trails just remain snow covered. Uh, same with some of the um, outlying trails areas. So a good example that probably everybody can picture would be Terry True Blood. We typically don't plow Terry True Blood recreational area um, and, and people can use it for snowshoeing or, or um, winter walking, I guess. This year we will clear it to try to make it a little bit more accessible for, for people. So if you, you can uh, drive over and, and walk comfortably along that trail. And there's several other locations throughout town that we're doing as well. well I just want to thank everyone for your comments. And, and uh, I, I certainly um, view this as, as, as the guide suggested, there's really a wide range of response responses that cities have made regarding snow clearing, everything from not only doing the ramps, but some cities do the sidewalks as well. So it's, it's um, I think, uh, a choice that a city has to make. And clearly we can look at different approaches toward, you know, how to have the, the program match up well with our resources. But, um, you know, there are many ways we could carve it out. It's there are certainly parts of Iowa City that people rely more on walking than others uh, that are more walkable. Uh, as Janice mentioned, there may be facilities that we want to try to consider. Um, our mass, you know, our public transit concept that we're developing. Are there certain routes that might be considered to um, provide better pedestrian access to those? bus stops, which are another piece that, you know, I didn't really want to put it on the table because, uh, you know, it's sort of focusing on the ramps. But another question, as you saw in the guide, was uh, the question of the bus stops. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things where the these issues all kind of tie together. And if we're trying to promote uh, alternative means of transit, you know, as I've tried to emphasize, 
you know, there's always a walk involved with that. So um, it's not simply the ramps as sort of a, you know, um, for, for pedestrians uh, on a walk, it's also tying into our, our multimodal concept of mobility that we're trying to promote. Great. Any other items from November 25th? So is, is the, I can't recall right now offhand, is the um, Good Neighbor Program also a portion, part of the regular agenda for tonight? It's in the information packet. I mean, is, is it just in, in the November 25th information packet? Or it's not on the, because one of the, I just wanted to call attention to that briefly because um, it, it brought to mind um, some things that that I heard over sort of the past year plus of where um, where we maybe need to sort of sit down at some point with the with the building committee community and and find out what um, what makes what increases the cost of building when we're taking a look in particular at affordable housing, what, what really does increase the cost? What could, what suggestions would they have that could decrease the cost? And I'm not saying that necessarily the, the, good, the good neighbor um, meetings are, are a prime example of that. It just jogged my memory that that's something that, that I would really value us as a council taking a look at, um, not down, down the road in conjunction with the, with the, with the community of builders, as we look at affordable housing, what what are the things that have been added to the code that that they they believe make make things much more expensive to build, um, and where could we find some compromise? Those are some of our pending work um, work session topics, um, especially when it comes down to discuss development of a new comprehensive plan to promote affordable housing, and we also have the affordable housing plan. So I think you're on to what is. Um, definitely a hot topic here for council and our efforts to create more affordable housing. So um, I think as we move forward and even on some of our work sessions, um, we'll be having some of those discussions as well. Some might get altered and put into something different, but um, we do have some work sessions related to that on the pending, pending list. Any other items from 1125? All right, um, updates on assignment boards, commissions and committees. I'll start, uh, so today actually I met with the Partnership for Alcohol and Safety um, and that's pause for, it's a collective of uh, university, um, downtown district or the businesses in, in the community, um, of course, the city, uh, county. And so it's just a collective of people that come together and have discussions. And today we had a great discussion. Um, there was a couple of presentations. The Guide Link Center did present and gave an update to us. So, uh, of course, they were here on our agenda tonight as well. Um, and then uh, the downtown district uh, did a presentation of reimagining downtown safety. And so they are continuing to have discussions on um, a, a variety of things when it comes to safety. And so uh, that was a great presentation. And then we heard from um, the vice president of student life at the University of Iowa and, and what the discussion um, by her was, it was reimagining campus safety Action Coalition, and so they have, have a, a group that is talking about the safety there on the campus. So there's a lot happening, and one of the themes throughout all of what was discussed was uh, definitely um, um, equi being equitable and, and really considering um, how just, just having a good uh, open conversation about race. And so and making sure that whatever they do is equitable. So I really appreciated those conversations today and that's all I have to report there. Chuck had a meeting last week 
no, week before, last week was Thanksgiving, um, and has got their preliminary budget ready. Um, so that should be going to, um, I think the Board of Supervisors, um, Tom Jones was gonna be presenting that. So pretty much in line, we've got some major changes, if you will, just because of contracts being up on the radios and that makes um, a big difference as they go forward, but trying to make sure that we've got some consistency uh, from year to year and avoiding some major spikes because of maintenance. So I just want to uh, just speak for J uh, Tom Jones. He just does an excellent job as the executive director out at Jack and um, really keeps us informed, does a great job with the budget as well. So we do have a, actually have a turnover in the kind of second in command position, um, individual left to take um, another job, which um, Brandon left, which is unfortunate for us, because um, he'd done a great job there. He was uh, kind of the direct um, oversight overseer for, I uh, had oversight for the dispatchers. So a new position or replacement position there, but things are going really well, budget looks good. Um, just some things with the, as we knew would be coming up with the radio contracts. All right. Any other comments or updates? I did meet with Think Iowa City. We we meet routinely. Um, I'm on the on the DMO board of directors. Um, of course, their year has looked a lot different when we're talking about bringing uh, events to the community. But um, overall, they are still in planning mode for 2021, and um, remain an optimistic. So. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Anything else for today? We will uh, be adjourned into, until seven, which will be our formal meeting. And that will be on a, on a different Zoom link. So we'll see you all at seven. Mm -hmm.